0: Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia, conversations with Asia's leading movers, shakers, thinkers, and provocateurs. This week, we make a return trip to Rishikesh, India, where listeners may recall I held a fast-paced and mind-bending conversation with Dr. Bruce Lipton, author of the book, The Biology of Belief. In that episode, Bruce makes a case for conscious healing. He cites decades of evidence that point to humankind's innate ability to boost the immune system, reverse disease, and ensure a happier and healthier frame of mind. If you haven't listened, please refer to the Inside Asia website. Bruce Lipton, you'll discover, is good medicine. I met others on my recent trip to India with equally compelling tales. Take Andrew Hewitt, for instance, founder of Game Changers 500, an organization bent on identifying and ranking global organizations looking to make a difference. Andrew and his Game Changer colleagues have come to believe, and I quote, that the profit at all costs model just isn't working, end quote. Many of our listeners know this is a subject near and dear to the heart. The world is coming to realize that the earth is resource limited. The party is dwindling, and if, as a race, we hope to survive and thrive, change is essential. Essential indeed, but unfortunately, not inevitable. For that, we need to do some heavy lifting. Some say only the private sector with its vast resources, top talent, and eye on innovation can lead that change. But making the leap from profit to purpose-driven is no easy task. No one knows this better than Andrew Hewitt. In our conversation, he shares many of the ups and downs that come with being on the front lines of a purpose-driven movement. A quick note. I recorded this interview on festival grounds. At one point, the sounds of background chanting enter into the conversation. Personally, I found it soothing, an audio antidote to the big questions of our time. I hope you enjoy it's just great to spend time with you, Andrew. Thanks for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah. You, this is the end of the seven-day festival, and uh, I guess where do you go from here? Where do I go from here physically is <laughs> to a more polluted city in Delhi, um, working with an Indian company on how to be a, a model of conscious business. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: let's start there. Conscious capitalism, it's a great starting point, and you've been on this topic for a while. Take us back to Andrew Hewitt in the early days. How did you come across this idea, and what did you initially do to address the subject? So I
1: was in business school and getting involved in all the student leadership type initiatives, and my friends and I were called you know, the leaders of tomorrow, and we were quickly recruited by some of the largest kind of Fortune 500 companies that... The brands people knew you know the places that we really thought were the successful careers and so i watched my friends one by one rise in the ranks of these fortune 500 type companies i took an entrepreneurial path but as the years went on i i watched these friends who were creative bright lights of passion become disenchanted by this profit at all cost corporate mentality and that really troubled me, you know. I I, I watched um, what what were promised to be the leaders of tomorrow, powering companies that were really among the most destructive, and beyond that, they were they were becoming depressed in the process. These were classmates who opted into traditional
0: corporate or early st- or, or, or uh, next gen corporate. What what type of corporate environments or was it
1: across the board? These would be like the big accounting firms, energy companies. Like insurance organizations. Um, yeah, big brands.
0: Was this a, a moment where a lot of individuals were thinking, uh, you know, money
1: is, is really the motive here versus something else? Yeah, I'm right at the front end of the millennials. Yep. So this was pre the millennials saying we want meaning and purpose. This was still being driven by, you know, status and success and yeah, so, so, so as a result of that, then you, you saw the demise, you saw the, the
0: the concerns and the fears that started to creep into people's lives. What did you then do about it?
1: So I, I was like, gosh, there's got to be a better way. You know, how do we how do we help the people who have the greatest potential to lead this world plug into the companies that are really making the biggest positive impact? And so I started looking for those companies. And it wasn't nonprofits. Like we were in business school. We weren't thinking about just joining a nonprofit, we were really looking to, to be part of growing a business. And so in that time, there was some early examples. I mean, there was the one-for-one one movement, Tom Shoes was making popular, there was companies like Google that were you know, famous for corporate culture or Patagonia. And oh my like, gosh, there's gotta be more. And why don't we have a ranking of these companies? You know, Why do we just celebrate the Fortune 500 based on revenue? Why don't we, why don't we look at companies creating amazing positive impact on the world? And so that started this idea of, let's create an alternative to the Fortune 500. And that became Game Changers 500.
0: And, and then what, what was involved? Was that just a recruitment process uh, or identifying uh, and, and calibrating and then setting a scorecard against those organizations? Uh, or, or was it something that um, organizations were anxious or interested to be involved in because they were receiving pressure from their shareholders and stakeholders? If I knew what was involved, I might
1: not have started. <laughs> Good response. Yeah, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's like, how do you gather the data yeah. to measure things that are hard to measure, yeah. like purpose and impact on employees and the environment? And
0: Well, how did you do it?
1: So, I mean, it started by recruiting some of those friends, recruiting some of the, the these, these student leaders that were often recruited into these large companies. And that time, that was maybe five years after I graduated university, and I was going to the same events that I was going to as a student, but I was going as a speaker. I had published a book. I was, I was able to then, like, recruit this talent that didn't want to join these traditional companies and wanted something else. And they came and basically did an internship with me. And I created this team of, you know, 20, you know, really bright young leaders. And we just started researching. We're just like, where do we find these companies? We created lists of lists. And we... We just started this really organic process of starting to build a framework around how to differentiate these companies from the pack.
0: I mean, was it? Was it? I'm just curious. Was it drilling right into the annual reports, or looking at uh, uh, you know brokerage reports, or were you trying to understand, or having interviews face to face? So was it news clip or anything in all of that?
1: So there's there's a few ways of looking at impact. One is through the proctor service. Mm-hmm. So you can find companies that have a proctor service that's genuinely impactful. Two, you can look at their operational practices. So there's some companies like Grayston Bakery, famous for hiring ex-offenders, massively impactful organization. Or you have organizations that tie the percentage of the profits, and so their impact is more through their giving program. So through those three lenses, that helped us find a bunch of different organizations. We looked at different rewards programs and uh, certifications that were awarding companies in these different arenas, and that helped us build a pretty, pretty decent database. And from there, it started to get more formal, and I teamed up with a group at Harvard, and uh, that became actually a government-led initiative to um, get more clear on what the difference is between the for-profit space and the non-profit space.
0: So did you start with a, uh, an idea of what a conscious company looks like, or did it emerge as you started to research and understand what organizations were doing?
1: Yeah, it definitely emerged. I mean, it was clear that these companies were being led by purpose. Their priority wasn't profit. Their priority was a noble mission. Um, but there was all these other practices. So it actually just took time to kind of wrap my head around that this is actually a model of business, or I'd like to say it's a change of the game itself. And so the companies that were really doing it well it wasn't just having a corporate social responsibility program or a, a nonprofit partner. They were their paradigm was different. Mm. They believed that the business existed to pursue a mission and to align an, the, the team with a certain set of values. Mm. That's what they were oriented around. So
0: where did this purpose reside within these organizations? Within the employees, within the leadership team, at the top, CEO only, and then he's pushing it down? Or did it just differ, or change
1: organization to organization? So one consistency is that the founder was typically the one leading the mission. Whether the founder was still there or not, um, that was a very clear indicator, actually, of, of a company that was purpose-driven. It was a founder who was erupted with a vision, moved it into action, and built a culture to help sustain it.
0: So most of the organizations you were focused on were early-stage companies building their culture versus trying to reform or rephrase it.
1: it. Yeah, it was easier to find pure examples in that context. Larger corporations that really weren't purpose-driven, that were trying to become purpose-driven, scored much lower in our system. Is that because they're simply locked in a
0: different uh, um, paradigm? They're, they're, they're set in a certain way and have different types of drivers that were unknown, or, or therefore they couldn't break away because stakeholders and shareholders had set certain expectations, even Wall Street, around that?
1: Yeah, so the game of a public corporation is all oriented around short-term profit. So even if you have really well-intentioned people, what they're measuring as success on a quarterly basis drives human behavior in a certain way. And so this is what I see with these large corporations today is a lot of them are trying to get into this game now of a purpose-driven world but they struggle because the whole design of the organization is oriented towards short-term profit, right? I want to come to that. But before we do that, what happened with game changers? So it was, it was an amazing ride in that, you know, it was, I was in the kind of the early wave of this tidal wave of momentum towards whether you call it social entrepreneurship or conscious business or purpose driven companies. And, and I was part of really helping popularize that, especially among uh, young people in universities and, um, And then it became cool, you know? It became cool to be one of these companies. And then what happens when something becomes cool? It attracts people to want power, it attracts like the ego. And so I I watched, in a way, it's like the purity of the space get diluted by just people wanting to be in the in crowd. But put it in context. What was
0: happening um, in the United States at that time and politically, economically? I mean, what was was there a feeling or a shift going on in the psyche of the, of the American public where they're thinking, it's time for a change, we need to see something? Because either you introduced cool or you basically fell into a cool wave one way or the other, um, this was rising. We could see organizations starting to want to address it in board meetings. It was coming up,
1: right, in, in all kinds of ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was just, it was in the stars that this was what was going to happen. Yeah. And um, myself and many, many other kind of people early in the space got to ride this wave. But clearly as, and now, you know, the, the days we're living, it's very clear, environmentally, we need to shift things, even socially. Um, another big impact was uh, the just the millennial generation being like a basketball going through garden hose. You know, it's this huge demographic and they're oriented to want meaning. They're often called entitled and all these names, but I think what it really is is, is they don't want to settle. They really want to feel a sense of purpose. They want their life to, to have an impact. Mm. And well, not to get too off track on that, but it's a really interesting point. Like what was triggering
0: that? Was it just looking at their parents and that generation and saying, listen, something just feels like it's going to come to a screeching halt sooner or later. The environment is faltering. Politics are in disarray. Uh, there's a feeling of, of, of greed, um, I mean, although it's always been there to some degree, and there've always been exceptions. But, but why, why was this millennial endeavor now focused more towards purpose instead of profit?
1: One way to look at it is um, through the lens of system change. And if you look through history, every time there's a major shift in epoch, it typically corresponds with a shift in communication technology. Because communication technology allows us to share worldviews in a different way, information in a different way. It actually connects us, actually builds more empathic bonds. As Jeremy Rifkin wrote this great book called Empathic Civilization. And so I think what was happening as the internet came online, YouTube... We actually as a global family got connected and we also got connected with the issues. And so the millennials were were the first group that kind of woke up to the reality of the state of the world and we're like we need to do something yeah. about this
0: and then you use social media as the means to communicate those feelings exactly yeah, yeah. so what so okay so then you're, you're moving along you're building you're now starting to rank uh, organizations um recruiting into this uh as as, uh, as many as you can up to 500 i guess would be the idea to create a uh, a a a comparative uh, a comparative to the fortune 500 where did it start to feel
1: like there needed to be a change so, as the years went on, I watched a lot of those organizations that I ranked as best for the world slide back to more traditional capitalism. And that was, that was really challenging, you know, it's, it's just I put my life into this, and I was like, wow, this is how we change the world. Business is the engine that drives things, um, obviously business is the solution, and there's a lot of people, you know, waving this flag, and now here we are, and things keep spinning out of control. It,
0: it was it investor pressure, or is it just the idea that hey, I feel success, I can taste it now in a traditional way. I'm going to push past this idea, purpose now get my
1: get what I deserve. So this is why I call it game changers, and I, I use game analogy because really what 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 I've observed is that unless you actually change the game itself, you don't sustain a change in behaviors. And so for behaviors to shift. Um, what you're oriented towards what you're giving priority to um, what you measure as success um, how you're legally structured also um, how you're funded these are all things that impact the game flow mm. and so yeah so some companies it was an investor pressure uh so while they thought they were a purpose-driven organization they took on capital that was really oriented towards profit mm. eventually you have to pay back those investors right right? And so they go public or they sell the company. And those types of pressures are very common.
0: So it was the practical considerations that, allowed, that, that created folks to start to float away or to drift away from the initial
1: mission or the idea that purpose could reign. Is that right? There, there's also a bit of an addiction in our culture to scale. So more is better. And so the, just the fact of just needing to keep growing the business you know what The tipping point is usually around 500 employees, that's what I noticed, is when um, some people say even after 150, you lose the sense of tribe and it starts to become um, more like a machine rather than a, a team. And so I know organizations that they now, once they go over 150, they create a new office building. So they keep it tight. And so those are some of the great models. But most companies, they just grow and they'll hire in people from the big corporate world who then come in and take this 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 team that's performing in a totally different way. They're oriented in a different way, but then they start being guided by people who've been trained by the big corporate world. Right. So they
0: bring in the big guns, the experienced executives who have a very hierarchical notion of how to get the best out of an organization and its people, and that undermines what appeared to be a growing movement in the direction of more distributed leadership. Would that be right?
1: Yeah, the the form of leadership is one aspect of it, Um, but if if you've been trained to play a game that's oriented to short-term profit and you're great at it and you come in and you're taking an organization that's oriented towards um, aligning with purpose and delivering exceptional customer service and all these things, really maximizing benefit rather than maximizing profit... It's a different thing, it's a different game. What's amazing though is that um, studies like firms of endearment have showed that the companies that are truly purpose-driven are outperforming the profit-driven companies by ratios as high as 14 to one. Yeah, and, and you would think, Andrew,
0: that that would be just enough to tip the balance and that all of a sudden if that's the case, well, how can I resist? Because if I can be a great organization, ethical, giving, environmentally
1: conscientious, good to my employees and profitable, why would I not do both? Well, that's definitely the desire. The the challenge, what I've noticed, is scale. So once the scale starts happening, some of these incredibly high-performing purpose-driven organizations, it's like they've they've trained players for a a purpose-driven game, and then they start bringing in players that are trained for a profit-driven game, and then you actually get low performance in both. And, and
0: you've given examples of organizations that have been acquired by large multinationals for I see Ben and Jerry's acquired by Unilever and others like that. So what might have been the right momentum was circumvent or, or short circuited, if you will, as soon as they enter into a larger organization with different rules and different operating principles.
1: Yeah, it's 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 been a very common story uh, mm-hmm. with organizations that have been acquired by the larger corporations. And they I mean Ben and Jerry's is a very interesting case study of how they they held on to their values and they made some very clear agreements with Unilever early on so that they could keep their culture intact. Um, and in a way, it's a great case study of that. There's a lot of organizations that really efforted to try to keep their culture in place, but in in time just kind of lost it in the sea of the big corporate world. Yeah. So what were some of your key takeaways
0: uh, from the experience of setting up Game Changers? W- knowing what you know now, is there anything you might've done differently or is this just evolutionary? That it's just corporations or organizations need to arrive at a certain point where they see the writing on the wall and therefore start to make the changes uh, as opposed, or in, in other words, were you ahead of the time?
1: So one thing I'm, I'm proud that we did is we helped popularize that there is a new way of doing business and we built a meaningful database of companies on gamechangers.co that you can really see, hey, there is a new way. I think that was great. Now that's that's known now. It's not as important as it used to be. Um, what I would do differently is the recognition that what, at least in my heart, I feel called to do is really support the world in this this shift that we're needing to go through. I mean, we don't have infinite resources on the planet, yet our whole game of business is oriented as if we do have infinite resources. And, and so we actually need a, a, a radical level of change. And so rather than um, yeah, I'd say it's, it's more being more clear of what are actually the necessary and sufficient conditions, uh, a way of doing business that will truly allow humanity to thrive into the future, mm. provide a great place to work, care about the planet, but not have us go to business as a species. Mm.
0: You know, uh, Andrew, in August of uh, 2019, the Business Roundtable came out with a statement that uh, said we uh, reject Milton Friedman's view in 1970 that the only uh, um, uh, role of the corporation is to serve the interest of the shareholders, and now we're going to take on this idea of being responsible for a broader stakeholder, uh, whether they be employees or in- internal sup- uh, suppliers or partners uh, or the environment. Um, I think 182 out of 197 signed that document, and it, it made Wall Street go a little ballistic, that how inf- could they actually do this? This is a rejection of what whether they're, they're born to do. What's your take on that? Was, is, is, did, is this a response to uh, in, an, uh, activist investor pressure? Is it coming from some kind of foundation view that they need to operate differently, but they don't know where to begin, so they'll start with a statement? Or is it just smoke and mirrors?
1: So I think it's great that this awareness is coming in and these leaders are really rising to the challenge and saying we need to do something different because you know the win-lose game of of capitalism turns to a lose-lose reality for everybody unless we change the game. So we all actually have a role in participating in that. Now, whether or not these organizations are really going to do anything meaningful is is the bigger question. And I think the pushback is from this view of more like Austrian School of Economics or free market thinking of like, don't have interference in the market. Yeah. Don't come in like a government and create rules because you'll reduce performance and be wasteful. In a way, there's a lot of truth in that. And that's where the, when you look at business as a as a purpose, being able to shift to a purpose-driven game, you can actually be high performing in it, mm-hmm. but you have to change quite a few aspects of how the organization runs. Mm-hmm. If you take a large corporation that's profit driven and and what it measures and how it trains people and how it rewards incentivizes if if, if you just try to kind of interject into that and kind of like a government taxing the organization it's just that's not as effective as if if you actually orientate the players towards purpose and be high performing at that because then as the studies show the organization can actually even produce more profit and so it's the way I like to put it is get clear on what game you're playing and play it well so there's some organizations that are playing the the profit driven game well mm-hmm. without interference right. for them to actually shift they actually have to they have to realize there's quite a bit to change to become a purpose high-performing purpose-driven organization fundamentals 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 yeah. Fundamentals and the organizations that go on the, that journey, I think, are the organizations of the future and no company is too big to fail these days.
0: You've been doing some thinking, some deep thinking on this subject about exactly what is required and, and to some degree in what order. Can you share with us some some of your thoughts on that? Like, uh, just take one or two aspects. I think you went through about six with us the other day. Could, could you run through those quickly and just give a feel for what you're thinking needs to take place and, and, and why that's so important?
1: Sure. So when we look at this through the lens of game theory, um, it's helpful because people play games. We're always playing games in life and games have common aspects. So if we look at business, we can see business through six common aspects. The objective, um, how we make choices, how we train people um, and develop them, um, how we motivate, uh, what we measure, and how we reward. And so, what in all six of those aspects there's a shift that can happen but if an organization only shifts <laughs> one of those things for example if an organization um, that's that's their objective is short-term profit and they say hey we want to we want to move to be now orienting towards purpose and they write a purpose statement and this I've been part of these this with large companies and they're like great we're now committed to purpose <laughs> but they don't change all these other five aspects yeah. nothing changes yeah. the game doesn't the behavior won't orientate in a different direction. You have to change what you measure. If you change how you hire, how you onboard, the culture of the organization. Yeah. You're speaking about the interrelatedness between divisions
0: or between uh, different aspects of the organization. And do they, instead of being so siloed in doing what they do, you're asking of them to reach across the line and really understand what my change is, how my change is going to affect your en- endeavors um, and therefore somehow create almost this, this looping effect so that you get more uh, a streamlined approach towards how everybody's operating on the same wave. But right now you're right, fits and starts. I mean I've seen I've seen this happen with uh, the communications will come up with a corporate social responsibility and make a declaration and then you know operations will do their very best to reduce wastage and uh, uh, in, in order to save costs but then you know people in sales aren't on board. <laughs> if they're not on board, you can't make the whole thing circle back, right? It's it's it hits a wall and it stalls. I mean that's been my impression watching
1: organizations.
0: Do you, do you have a similar feeling about
1: this? Yeah, this is big. So like a real simple thing to do. That's actually not so simple, but in terms of orienting a new, new direction, if you're going to commit to a more of a stakeholder approach to business than a shareholder approach to business, then shift your performance metrics You know, at the board, at the CEO, at the manager, your level, so that you're actually your incentives, your financial incentives, your reward incentives are actually tied to the metrics that aren't just based on short-term profit. Can you give an example of that?
0: Like, who's who has made those big changes and created those different, uh, I mean, it diff- it's KPIs, right? It's just yeah. a, net, a new
1: set of KPIs, key performance indicators. So here in India, I'm working with a company called Organic India, a large supplement um, and tea company. And they've created this system called KPDs, key purpose drivers. So they've defined different elements of their purpose. And then, They've, rather than just having the KPIs, they have KPDs. So there's very clear indicators of whether um, they're aligning with what their stated purpose is and their reward structure is actually based on that. And that's something from the top
0: down or is each division head then required to come up with their own KPDs that they then roll
1: out and buy, gain buy-in with? So the CEO has a pretty extensive roadmap of KPDs but okay. division heads as well. And
0: then, as as this happens, is it then it, could this serve as an interesting recruitment tool back to your millennial question? If an organ, if young people coming into the workforce see that here's here's a corporation that's actually thinking about rewarding me differently, I'm on board with that. That feels right, and that's different from just profit motive. Um, is that a good way of of attracting, retaining,
1: recruiting, and holding on to people? Great question. So, to attract millennials or customers in this day and age, it's all about trust mm-hmm. and. I mean you can't hide anymore with with social media these days it's just the world's transparent so organizations are trying to put on this facade of being good socially responsible but you quickly see behind the scenes it's just not the case mm-hmm. so when you have these types of practices in place where you can say we actually tie our performance compensation to our impact mm-hmm. you know that's real like that's trustable mm-hmm. So yeah, that's going to attract the millennial that really wants to believe it, and that's going to trust attract the customer that really wants to put their money where their values are. Yeah. You know, you give a great example. I'm mean, going to actually to tell the story of, uh,
0: of Kraft, if you wouldn't mind, because that's a great story of, of an organization, well-intentioned,
1: uh, that, uh, a face to change. Could, could you tell us that tale? Sure. So Kraft Foods, 100-year-old company, it really was really founded by a purpose-driven individual. Um brought me in through this journey of moving towards being a purpose-driven organization worked with the ceo the executive team and when i first started there was this like sea of um consultants and legal experts like you know working on the statement of purpose getting the words right making sure they were compliant and I'm just so my job was basically to say based on my research on all these companies that are really the models like what are they are they on track and I'm like guys purpose isn't a statement it's a feeling (laughs) it's like your employees either feel a sense of purpose and your customers when they buy from you either feel like they're part of a purpose or they don't it's not the statement's just like one aspect (laughs) that's a job for marketing (laughs) that's what most companies do they see it actually as a marketing assignment it says the absolute opposite way that should be looked at because that's going to reduce trust You don't try to persuade people of it you actually just be it you embody it and so in the case of craft i mean they listened and we actually developed this whole proof of purpose system so they had to their, their internal team yeah. were tracking if they were in alignment before starting to communicate it externally. Uh, so, so it's almost create these ideas and then sound them out
0: among you know uh, employees or other members of the organization. If it resonated at the feeling
1: level, okay, it sticks and we go with it. Is that the idea? Well, in, in the case of a large company like this that was clearly not trusted as a good purpose driven ethical company, that this was very important um, for them to really prove it. and. Now, as the story goes, that lasted about eight months (laughs) and then the chairman of the board comes in, the CEO is released, he takes over as CEO, merges the company with Heinz, all our purpose work is out the door, tens of thousands of people are are let go and next thing you know, the, this 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 chairman retires. He makes 19.9 million dollars in this five months of work, and this is it. This is the profit-driven mentality, you know, and and people can play the game. You know, when when you tell
0: that story, it makes me think of um, Asian family-run businesses. I mean, Asia has been born on the back of large-scale uh, Asian families who have been granted. Uh, you know, uh, certain licenses or uh, agreements in order to build businesses, um, that CEO is not going to get pushed out. If anything, he'll be replaced by his son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter. Um, so there is the opportunity to then, as long as the grandkid can convince granddad that it's time to make a change, um, you don't have to worry about that. Have you thought about the certain um requirements are the certain um, uh, set of requirements in order for organizations to fully embrace and succeed around purpose-driven development. In other words, if it's not the publicly listed because of Wall Street's pressures, if it's not the small, medium-sized businesses because they don't have the resources to do it, could it be the Asian-style family-run businesses that have more longevity, more staying power,
1: and more control
0: over their boards and what they do and what they don't do? i think asia actually
1: has a real advantage in this uh in they think longer term mm-hmm. and when you have a family committed to legacy you know the legacy to leave is an organization and, and especially at this moment in time is when the millennials come in to take over these companies the legacy is actually to, to run a company that's truly changing the world um, not the empire that's so profitable and in power but this is the shift in consciousness mm-hmm. So that's that I think Asia has an advantage um, of being able to pass the torch with a commitment to legacy where the Western world is so short term focused. It's like this CEO comes in, flips the company, doesn't even care about the company, doesn't care what happens to it or the people within it. And so I think that's a huge advantage for Asia. Yeah, privately held. And it, it, it also makes me think about the way that um,
0: a lot of these Asian leaders, they they are, have always had a tradition of not making waves. They don't want to rattle the cages or create any political uh, incoherence because at the end of the day, that's who they owe their wealth to. Um, but there is a shift now where they're established, they're credible, they're going cross-border. They seem to be merging, acquiring. There's now this 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 going global, which is happening with Asian businesses. So Maybe this is the moment, but it's just, it, it brings to mind some of the experiences where, you know, the multinationals tend to be on the front end of wanting to do something like that because it's good PR or, or it just feels right, right? Or, or their customers are demanding it. Uh, but it does make me think about the real opportunity that exists for some of the Asian family-run businesses. What, what are your thoughts about, um, you know, how you're going to take this forward? Like where would be your next step in terms of the good work you've done in years past? Where will you go from
1: here? So... I'm a framework guy. Mm-hmm. I love building frameworks because <laughs> this is complex space, you know, yeah. and then making sense of it is actually a big part of what needs to happen. There's all these buzzwords: B Corp, conscious capitalism. I mean, like, what is this? Yeah. What is the model? <laughs> and so, so an executive gets inspired, like a Patagonia. We want to be like Patagonia, and then the next question is like, well, how do we do it? Yeah. Like, what's the f- yeah. and. B Corp certification is one path in. Some people find it's just not appropriate for their company, either if they're a startup or a large corporation, it's, 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 it's not necessarily um, a fit. Uh, and it's a little complex. It has a great role and it's a very powerful movement. I, I very much recommend it. Um, my approach has been more simplify it. Um, look at it as a game. Get clear on the common best practices. And so the new framework I've been developing You know, it's it's just taking us a step further in terms of, like, what are the true, necessary, sufficient conditions of changing the game so business is oriented towards creating a world that works for all life. Andrew, a pleasure speaking with
0: you. Thank you so much for taking time out. We wish you great success. It's a pleasure, Steve. That was my conversation with Andrew Hewitt, founder of Game Changers 500, a US-based research and consulting firm helping companies align profit and purpose. But can, in fact, the two coexist? Apparently so. Fortunately for us, Andrew is not alone in this venture. Legions of forward thinkers are emerging to demonstrate that profit need not be sacrificed in the interest of greater good. If that sounds like malarkey, consider this. According to Raj Sisodia, David Wolfe, and Jagdish Seth, authors of the groundbreaking book Firms of Endearment, the past 15 years have shown that organizations that achieve higher purpose outperformed Fortune 500 firms, 14 to 1, and good to great companies by 6 to 1. That should be reason enough for any company to make the change. But what does this kind of change look like? According to the book's authors, it requires companies to, and I quote, strive through their words and deeds to endear themselves to all their primary stakeholder groups, customers, employees, partners, communities, and shareholders, by aligning the interests in such a way that no single stakeholder group gains at the expense of the other groups, end quote. So take that, Milton Friedman. Sounds like a case of having your cake and eating it too. This all begs the question, if companies can do good and profit too, why don't more follow in this path? As you heard from my conversation with Andrew, the answers are both mixed and unclear. In some instances, it's simply a matter of intransigence. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. In other cases, it's fear. Ask any senior executive, instigating change carries risk. There are vested interests to consider, operational disruption, moments of uncertainty, etc. In other words, if something goes wrong, someone gets fired. So here's the question. Could the purpose-driven business model be to the next decade what digital transformation was to the last? We saw the ripping and tearing of the traditional corporate fabric as companies raced to place business online, shift to digital media, and flatten reporting lines. Hierarchical companies were brought to their knees while born-in-the-web businesses like Amazon invented new ways of cutting costs and delivering results. To survive, bricks and mortar had to morph. The purpose-driven agenda is more nuanced. It relies on the good intentions of corporations and their preparedness to make changes that serve the interests of a broader base of stakeholders. What's missing this time around is the same burning mission for companies to transform or die. In this instance, it's the environment, communities, and society at large that are at risk. Profits? Well, that's still possible by sticking to the old paradigm at least for a while. In the weeks and months ahead, you'll be hearing more from us on the subject. As I point out in my conversation with Andrew, Asia's unique positioning and the role of the family-run enterprise offers hope. Whether Asia can once again leapfrog Western nations in pursuit of purpose-driven agendas is yet to be seen. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Inside Asia. What's your take on the subject? Let us know by reaching out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Inside Asia wherever you download and listen to podcasts, or visit us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia.